Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome to JFK, the Enduring Secret YouTube channel. Well, this has been a long time coming, and this is our very first episode. For those of you who are already listeners of our popular podcast, JFK, The Enduring Secret, well, now we have an exciting set of new shows that cover materials and stories that you won't find on the podcast itself. Today is inaugural episode number one, and it's an amazing one. Today, we visit with some of the authors of a brand new book out entitled Chokeholds, a new book on the JFK assassination. It's not often that you are able to bring together five very learned individuals and have them be in a position to collaborate all together on a single book about the assassination. And that is exactly what happened with Chokeholds. The author group is led by James Diogenio. And for those of you who follow the assassination more closely than others, you'll know Jim's name. He is one of the leading researchers on the subject. He's joined in this endeavor by Paul Blow, Matt Crumpton, Andrew Eiler, and Mark Adamczyk. And before we begin, I'd like to provide a brief biographical summary for each of our guests. Let's start with James DiEugenio. Mr. DiEugenio has an M.A. in history from California State University, Northridge. He is a retired teacher who has written or co-edited four books on the assassination of the 60s, Destiny Betrayed, The Assassinations, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today, and finally, JFK Revisited. The last volume is the companion piece to Oliver Stone's two recent documentaries on the Kennedy assassination, JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass, and JFK Destiny Betrayed. Jim wrote the screenplays for both of those films. He has lectured widely and made many appearances on many broadcast programs about the subject. He is the editor and publisher of the online journal Kennedysandking.com, which features articles, news stories, and critiques of works about the four major assassinations of the 60s, JFK, Malcolm X, MLK, and RFK. Next, we turn to Paul Blow. Paul holds an MBA from McGill University in Montreal, Canada. With over 25 years' experience as a strategic planner on national accounts, Paul eventually took ownership of and presided over Blow Marketing Communications. He co-founded Harmonia in 2006, which has grown to become a leading commemorative services provider in the Quebec market. Paul has also sat on many boards. He now is in his 18th year as a teacher in the P.W. Sims Business Program at Champlain St. Lawrence College. Presently a Kappa member, he has a long track record of research and writing about the JFK assassination, which includes appearing in Oliver Stone's documentary, JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass, writing numerous articles for KennedysandKing.com and speaking regularly as a guest on Black Op Radio and on other podcasts. Next, we'll turn to Andrew Eiler. 
Mandrew is an Ontario-based lawyer practicing in the areas of corporate law, commercial, and administrative law, having served or chaired provincial and federal governmental tribunals, and having appeared as counsel at the Federal Court, Ontario Court of Appeal, Ontario Superior Court, and numerous federal and provincial tribunals. Over the last several years, Mandrew has developed a comprehensive base of knowledge in and around the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992 and legal aspects of the official investigations into the assassination of President Kennedy. Unable to join us today are the other two authors, Mark Adamczyk and Matt Crumpton. Matt is also a lawyer, and so is Mark, and I've had the opportunity to do episodes or shows with both these gentlemen and their fine folks. We're sorry they were unable to make it today, but we'll hear more from both of them very soon on other episodes. Today we get a chance to talk with these authors about their new book. So, without further ado, let's proceed directly to this interview. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, and uh, thanks for being on the show today. I'm just so excited about having every one of you on, and uh, uh, just uh, this is really kind of a, uh, an important event in the uh, life of JFK, the Enduring Secret, because we don't have uh, anything yet on the YouTube channel, so you actually are going to be the inaugural show, and oh, what a show it's going to be. <laughs> Look who I <laughs> have on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. And, uh, and, and Jim's being quiet, but I have to tell you, you know, and I, maybe because I'm older, I can say this. Uh, he's the granddaddy uh, of us all in terms of JFK uh, uh, yes. research and recognition and so on and so forth. And uh, just really happy to have you on. I mean, you're such a recognizable name. You all are, actually, but uh, certainly, Jim, because of so much of what you've done that's been in the foresight of, of uh, the public. And, uh, oh, thank Andrew. you, Jeff. You're welcome. I, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm just, again, I'm thrilled. Uh, uh, Andrew, uh, I got to meet Andrew a while back before I've uh, gotten to meet the both of you. Uh, and Andrew, uh, there's a lot, there's a few people who uh, obviously know more uh, about the JFK Records Act than anybody on the face of the earth. And I would, uh, I'd put Andrew in that category. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, just an amazing resource for all of us. And I know you know a lot more about other aspects of the case other than just the records act issues but uh when it this is so front and center right now in the middle of all this that uh uh you know you we're going to get you on a show another show pretty soon to uh to talk about that we've had we've had you on one before with mark adamsic and i'm sorry mark and uh uh, uh your other co-author matt crumpton were not able to be on uh, you know matt and i are friends as well i'm going to be on his one of his shows Sunday. So uh, we'll get a chance to see him, but I know uh, schedules precluded that, uh, but well represented here. So excellent. Uh, Jeff, I got to say, it's been fun watching your show grow over the, the last few years. I, I jumped on listening to it when it first started and it's amazing how many episodes, how many great episodes you you've had. So it's been a pleasure getting to know you and, uh, and watching your show really succeed out there in the wider audience. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it's really, take, I, I will say it's really taking off. It took three years. It's three years old now. And uh, it, it, it was uh, a steady rise until just before the 60th anniversary. 
And all of a sudden, uh, right around the 60th, right before the 60th, um, we happened to actually be doing some Secret Service episodes. We didn't get to the Secret Service aspect of this until then. So it was good timing with the Paul Landis uh, news and so on and so forth. And uh, we're actually finishing that aspect of it up now. There's 20 or so episodes out there. And I was fatigued, but I think we're going to do a couple more uh, on that. So, yeah, and it's just – and we have as much – download volume in the last six months as we did in the first two and a half years, if you can believe it. One of the things about the book, the JFK assassination chokeholds that I really like and appreciate is that I think it's the first book that actually addresses what Joe Biden did uh, with his, I think it was in June of nineteen of 2023, he essentially lowered the boom on the JFK Records Collection Act. And we were, Andrew wrote that part of the book. And I don't think it's in any other book, that I, at least that I've seen so far. Okay, but I think it's very, very important. Okay, um, w- what Andrew essentially outlined is that what Biden did actually want to step beyond what Trump did, okay? And he explains, you know, the how and why of, uh, of, 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 of how that happened and why. And that's, the, that's one of the last parts of the book. What the outline of the book is, it essentially takes, and that, by the way, that one is uh, in the obstruction chapter, which is the last chapter before the conclusion, Okay, Andrew and Paul wrote that, and then I wrote the conclusion, all right? But what they did is they outlined, and I think this is very persuasive, okay? 60, if, if the JFK case was as simple as the Warren Commission says it was, if Oswald just went ahead and took three shots, three magic shots, okay? And, and by the way, did you notice I said magic shot, three magic shots? <laughs> yeah. Because it's not just, and this is... Let me divert just a minute. I actually wanted Oliver to put this in the movie, okay? But he edited it out of the script that I submitted to him. It's not one magic bullet. Everybody knows what the one magic bullet is. It's actually three magic bullets, okay? Because, let me explain, I'll try and make this as brief as I can. On the on the so-called missing shot that missed the not only did it miss the car it missed the street so <laughs> we're supposed to believe that this guy got two out of three direct hits but he missed the street okay and he was then, awfully nervous <laughs> and then on top of that on top of that there's no copper on the curb Okay, the FBI tried to hide this <clears throat> for years on end. But Harold Weisberg finally went through enough FOIA suits that he got this information. Now, what does that mean that there's no copper on the curb? Because the bullet was supposed to hit the curb, ricocheted up, and hit tag. If anybody here has ever seen WCC 6.5 bullets, they're covered in copper. They're 
completely a whole coating of okay. copper is over the top of the bullet. <laughs> so how could the bullet hit that curb, go 180 degrees up without leaving a trace of copper? Okay, <laughs> so so that's the second magic bullet. Okay, and by the way, if you want to see something funny, you ought to read how Posner and Bugliosi try and explain this in their books. I've been I've had the misfortune of having to read every page of those two books. Okay, <laughs> That's a lie. I, I, That's a lie. I, I I would not recommend this for the mental health of anybody listening to this show. Okay, or you'll be a worse person if you read those two books. Now, the way that Posner explains this. Now, I hope everybody who's listening is sitting down. Okay, he says the bullet hit a twig. <laughs> the tree and the twig knocked off the copper coating now <laughs> how he wrote that with a straight face is unbelievable now what Bugliosi does all right he says the bullet was spinning and as it hit the street that rotation stripped off all the copper Okay, and, and that's why there's no <laughs> copper on the curb. All right, now I think anybody would say those are fantasies. Okay, they're ridiculous. Now, here is the third magic bullet. Okay, this is the one that's supposed to have struck Kennedy in the skull. All right, now to believe this, remember the tip and the base of that bullet allegedly end up in the front seat of the car okay so in other words it's split but it's still both pieces still hurtled forward and landed in the front of the car but here's the problem there's a 6.5 millimeter fragment is still in JFK's skull okay so the only logical conclusion is that the bullet split into I can't even keep a straight face saying this. The bullet split into three sections and the front and the base went forward into the car and the middle of the, the middle of the bullet stayed in JFK's head. Okay? Now how how could the base of the bullet gravitate either above or below the middle of the bullet and proceed out the front of JFK's skull, therefore hitting it there? And how could the middle of the bullet stop so close to the exterior of JFK's skull? Because it's only like a, a fraction of an inch inside JFK's head. All right. So this is, these are actually, if you actually take them apart and analyze them, it's not one magic bullet. It's three magic bullets. Okay. Has anybody ever in their whole life ever heard of three magic bullets in an assassination? Okay, but but that that's what we're forced to believe with this. All right. Yeah. Mm. Well, don't, you know, so along those lines, I uh, you know, there's for me, there's additional questions in all this. I when you start to count up the evidence of damage and and potential damage, the idea of there being just those many bullets is is difficult to uh, you know to to understand, but I think the other part of it is the acoustic the acoustical uh, perception of people in that uh, plaza because of the problems with the 
size of the, the, the buildings and the, their juxtaposition to one another and so on and so forth. There's a lot of very, uh, testimony on this and one thing i wonder and i we haven't i haven't seen a lot on this you all probably know a lot more about this than i do but if you count the number of potential hits uh around the limousine and uh some that missed as you talked about there there's way more than three or four most people say three or four so is was there the possibility of a use of uh uh some form of silencers or or other type of uh uh, you know, uh, add-ons to these guns Suppressors. that may have, yeah. I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like it's in much of the reading or the literature or, or, or gun experts have talked about it a lot, but it seems to me like, uh, that should have been a distinct, uh, element of the research or the investigation and not much is there on it. Carol Hewitt, who is retired now, um, she used to write for pro magazine. Yeah. Okay. And she actually wrote an article about this. Uh, they were called suppressors in those days. All right. I don't know how she did it. She got, a, see, one of the chief suspects for supplying the weapons in Dealey Plaza is a guy oh. named Mitch, Mitch Werbel. Okay. And he was a child prodigy, you know, with uh, ammunition and rifles, etc. I don't know how she did it, but she got a chart that Rebel had made up, okay, um, of what he called a directionally silenced rifle, okay. And what he did is he mapped out on this chart, if the, if the rifle's here and the bullet's going this way, there will be a zone where people don't hear anything at all, but there will be a zone also where people hear something, but they're going to hear it as if it's coming from the other side. Okay. And so she came to the conclusion. And by the way, Jim Hogan actually wrote about this once too, very briefly. You know, this is the pattern you get in Dealey Plaza. Okay. You mm -hmm. know, which leads to suspicion. Maybe Werbel actually did, you know, supply the weapons for the, uh, for the assassination. All right. So that, that's that's a very, very interesting question. But let me uh, to, to get back uh, to the book, um, what Paul and I and Andrew did with our two other authors. We tried to take 10 topics. OK. Um, and for like, for example, uh, Matt Crumpton wrote a very good essay on impersonations of Oswald. And in fact, that's the best essay I've actually ever read on that subject. It's the most complete and the most comprehensive that I've ever read on that. You know, and then he concludes, could, could all these instances of impersonation be a coincidence? You know, the all accidental, etc. Okay. And then uh, uh, Paul did one. Well, Paul did actually more than one. Um, but he 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 did one on the prior plots, okay, and um, and he's been writing about this for a very long time, you know, and and he accents how is it so possible that so many of the prior fall guys were associated with the FPCC, you know, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, you know, hmm. could that could that be an accident? And Oliver actually took 
on a couple of these and we put it in the film, the Tampa plot and the Chicago plot. Okay. All right. And so then I wrote about <clears throat> CE399. Okay. The one that's commonly called the magic bullet. You know, and I, and I traced the almost impossible chain of, well, I think it actually is impossible, the chain of custody of CE399. And so what, what we did, the concept of the book is that each one of these taken singly, okay, would be a very, very serious problem for the prosecution, okay, if, you, if Oswald had actually stood trial. But taken together, all right, it would be almost an impossibility. You know, uh, I think Paul is going to say it actually would be an impossibility, okay, to convict Oswald when you take these together, okay? Uh, yeah. And Andrew, Andrew did, and this is another thing that's unusual about the book. I've never seen this before. See, since Andrew is, in a, is a lawyer up there in Canada, he... He did a lot of work on what is called standards of proof. Okay, you know the uh, there's generally accepted there's three standards. Okay, the preponderance of the evidence, clear and convincing, and beyond a reasonable doubt. I will let him talk about that. Andrew, go ahead. Tell him what you found out about the whole reasonable doubt standard. Yeah, you know, I, I've been interested in standards of proof for quite some time. So the first thing I, I really wanted to do is look at how the previous investigations handled um, applying their standards of proof to uh, to their findings and conclusions. And so I, I dug into the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee, and while they gave lip service to standards of proof, they actually went out of their way to say, well, we're not going to apply a standard of proof to our decision-making processes. And that's right in the Warren Commission and in the House Select Committee. And so I became deeply concerned because when you're looking at evidence, when you're weighing evidence, you always apply the evidence against a standard of proof. And to not do so is is a problem because it allows for completely arbitrary decision-making. And so learning that the that the Warren Commission said, oh, this is uh, uh, the rock of Gibraltar of all cases, and uh, and our conclusions are solid, yet they didn't apply any standard of proof to any of the evidence that they considered. And the same goes for the House Select Committee. I, I thought, okay, well, in our book, at least, we should look at all of the different standards of proof and apply a high standard of proof of clear and convincing evidence to the issues of conspiracy and obstruction. And so when Matt, uh, Paul, Jim, and Mark went through each of their chapters, when they looked at the evidence for conspiracy or obstruction of justice, they applied the high level of standard of proof of clear and convincing evidence. And then on the flip side, when it comes to Oswald's guilt, um, we should apply the criminal standard, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. So I think the book really does a good job at looking at all of the evidence and presenting it in a way that the reader, as as you like to say, Jeff, uh, the, the jury, um, 
can weigh that evidence under a real standard, unlike the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee. Now, I I do have to say, um, at each stage along the way, the the government decision makers have immediately attacked the standards of proof. So they didn't even apply any in the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee. But in 2017, when the JFK Act uh, deadline came around in October of 2017, the very first thing that happened is in a memo from the Office of Legal Counsel, Curtis Gannon. And the first thing that he did is he tried to eradicate or render inoperable Section 6 of the JFK Act, which contains the clear and convincing standard of proof. And uh, and and I got to say, in the current court case um, in California, the same thing is happening. They are trying to get rid of the postponement standards under Section 6 and the standard of proof. So the standard of proof frames the chokeholds book. And I think it should really frame anyone's consideration of any of the evidence in uh, in this case. So it, it it's a central part of the book. Paul, maybe you want to comment. Well, yeah, if I if I can build on what both you and Jim are saying, uh, Jeff, uh, the the concept of the book, what stimulated it was, I, I would say, two things. Uh, first off, is uh, about ten years ago, I had done a study on how history books relate the Kennedy assassination and an overwhelming number of them. I'm talking about the textbooks, you know, uh, handed out to high school students uh, will say something along the lines that uh, he was killed by a lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald. And this was confirmed by the Warren Commission. Uh, I later questioned the authors through email. They all answered over 20 books I'm talking about here. And, uh, very few, if any, knew of the existence of the subsequent investigations after the Warren Commission, including those that impeached the Warren Commission. I mean, that's unbelievable in itself. The second thing uh, that that I would say stimulated chokeholds is last year at Kappa, I met uh, um, uh, Matt Crompton and Mark Adamsick for the first time. I've known Jim for 10 years now because I've been writing a lot for Kennedys and King. And later I met Andrew and, and we said, you know, we had a discussion and, and people were asking, well, what do you think of the backyard photos? What do you think of the acoustic evidence? And, uh, you know, slowly but surely what we were saying, well, they're interesting, they're compelling, but as far as we're concerned, they don't constitute what Malcolm Blunt would call a chokehold. And one of them asked, well, what is a chokehold? It's something that's indisputable. You can dispute the backyard photos. I mean, I, I you know, I have, I, I, you know, when you get into the shadow discussion and all that, I've looked at shadows and they're tricky. You know, you can't, you, you can't convince someone, everybody of that. So what we, we, we finally, you know, looked at and we talked, discussed, we said, well, these are the 10 most compelling chokeholds. And each one of them, if you conclude that Oswald was impersonated, then there's a conspiracy. If you conclude that um, uh, CE399 or the magic bullets are impossible, then there's a conspiracy. So in the book, you have 10 chokeholds. And, and uh, uh, 
what was great about this book is we had three attorneys reigning us in, as well as Jen, saying, hey, wait a minute. If I brought this to a jury, how confident would I feel with this? Uh, what are your sources? You have over 700 sources in the book, and they tend to be almost entirely primary sources. In other words, not necessarily another book. It would be, here's what, uh, you know, uh, the FBI had to say about this, or here's witness testimony that's on video. So uh, maybe end on this note, the word chokeholds comes from Malcolm Blunt, and he used it on maybe a more complicated chokehold, but it had to do with, uh, Jim is well aware of this, is the uh, Betsy Wolf find for the HSCA. Betsy Wolf was a House Select Committee uh, staffer who was tasked with trying to figure out the uh, CIA filing systems, especially as they pertain to defectors. And what came out of that research was basically two things is, it did not make sense that the 201 file on Oswald was opened a year late. And there was something extremely revealing in the fact that all the information on Oswald that normally would have gone to the Soviet Russia division did not. It ended up going to the Office of Security. And the reason it went to the Office of Security, according to John Newman and others, is Oswald was being used as a false defector. So that is just one element in that, that part there about, you know. But, uh, it's, but, but Paul, it's not, it's not just that. Oh, the yeah. Office of Security does not set up a 201 file. Okay. That's yeah. another thing that Malcolm told me. All right. See, Jim, they didn't want a 201 file on this guy set up. That's yeah. why one of the reasons it went there. Okay. Let me just add something with Andrew. Uh, because I think that's such an important part of the book. One of the things that Andrew discovered um, is, and which I've never seen in any other JFK book, okay, uh, and that's another reason it makes this so unique, that the origination for the beyond a reasonable doubt standard comes from the fact that it's not so much for the defendant, it's to protect the community from the guilt of convicting an innocent man, okay? And I, when I read that, when I, after I first saw Andrew wrote it, I go, can you get any more perfect for the JFK case? Because ever since the Warren Commission has been exposed, our country has been plagued by this doubt, okay, this disbelief this cynicism about government. <coughs> and and uh, according to polls, it started in 1964 when the Warren Commission report was first issued. So that's another real gem <coughs> that, that Andrew dug up, you know, that I think makes for a really important contribution and makes the book unique. It, if, if I can just say something to that, Jim. Yeah, you know, I, I found this uh, book called origins of reasonable doubt and uh and so I, i've given credit in the book to uh to to, to that piece of work um but it, it went even a little bit further which i i again i i think it really does apply to the jfk case um it, it back in the old days really old days it was considered a mortal sin to wrongfully convict someone and so 
there there are religious underpinnings to this whole beyond a reasonable doubt standard of proof and uh and and so the court system or judicial system ended up adopting this beyond a reasonable doubt in order to protect the souls of jury members so just in case they did wrongfully convict someone they wouldn't be damned to hell for doing so um and it just when it comes to the JFK case, I, I God help those people who uh, who convicted Oswald in, in the uh, in in the public opinion on such flimsy evidence. Yeah, you know, uh, you're you, you all are probably like me. I have something like 250 or 300 books on the on this topic, and thousands of videos, and and lots of uh, other published information as resources when I write the. Uh, the episodes, uh, they range in readability, uh, the crispness of the prose, the clarity of what you get inside of those books, but, you know, your basic ability to uh, comprehend and understand what their point is, because sometimes there is no point in some of them. And I will say that uh, this was an incredibly refreshing read for me. Uh, the construct of the book is such that it's you use executive summaries. I come from the business world. I love that. You know, I can listen to somebody for 10 or 15 minutes and you're not sure what they're telling you. And you're sort of like, what's your point? Well, mm -hmm. you start out with the point, the point, the point is right there. It's very clear to the reader. And then you proceed to uh, lay out your case associated with it. It's a very logical uh, construct to the book. And I think it makes it very readable and, uh, very comprehensible. So, and, and the other part, which, uh, and you all are uh, demonstrating this by the by the richness of this conversation, the depth of your understanding. I mean, you're the premier uh, part of the premier research set in the country, uh, in the world that uh, looks and continues to seek the truth about this topic. And what I find on the podcast is that the there's a casual understanding of this by a lot of people there's a complete lack of in-depth understanding of it by by most although the podcast attracts people who have a fair amount of uh, uh of knowledge actually accumulated for the most part usually over a, a long period of time particularly people in our my generation that may have seen seen things first on the movie JFK, so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, the what I uh, love about the book is you can read it and you can be sort of a beginner or, or at any any stage of your matriculation on the topic and really get something new out of it. Uh, Maybe a lot new if you're, uh, you know, if you're uh, uh, relatively new to the game. Uh, and that's the that's the wonderful thing about it because it's a common denominator uh, type yeah. of book. You know, I think uh, <laughs> it's going to bring a lot of people together with a common understanding of these really important topics you've just talked about. Well, well Jeff, if I may uh, chime in, uh, you're absolutely right. It was top of mind, I think, for the authors. How can we make this easy to digest for? beginners as well, and meaningful for people who've researched for a long time. Uh, look, I'm doing an awful lot of, uh, I've done an awful lot of book reviews, and there are so many names of characters 
So if you look at the typical index, I'm sure it's five times longer than what you'll find in any, any book. So trying to just keep up with the names and you have Italian names in there, you have uh, German <laughs> names, you have uh, Cuban exile names. So it's just, you know, you, you know that when you watch a TV show, you have trouble keeping up with six characters. How are you going to do it with hundreds? And we, I actually teach a business to students. And that's the first thing we teach them is that if you want to get the reader or the bosses or the person interviewing his attention, you have to be able to have an executive summary. And if you have an executive summary where within one page you say, okay, I get the gist of it. Well, the person will be able to have that as, you know, sort of a benchmark for reading the next 20 pages and saying, okay, yeah, he mentioned that. He see, I see, uh, I see why he brought this up in the executive summary. So, yeah, I think that was, uh, that was really important in, in the construct and, um, you know, sticking to a, a, a formula. And at the end of every chapter, what you had is sort of a summation. A summation that a lawyer would make and saying, therefore, ergo, because of this, 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 this and that, he could not have been on the sixth floor or uh, because of this. We now how many people do you know that were impersonated at least 17 times that were 23 year olds? You know, so that's it, it's it's a logical construct. And. If, if you may argue with one of the chokeholds, two, four, maybe seven, but there are three that you agree with, you have a conspiracy. See, one of the, one of the things the book opens up with uh, is the dissidents who were in on the official investigations. Okay. Like, for, for, for instance... Most people think, and this was the propaganda line put out, was that the Warren Commission was unanimous in their opinion. Well, that, that isn't true, all right? And in fact, the Warren Commission was in fact a minority report, all right? It should be called the Dulles-McCloy Commission, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it really should yeah. be called, all right? Because as we put in there, as we elucidated, you know, you had uh, Richard Russell, John Sherman Cooper, Hale Boggs, and Jerry Ford, who all disagreed, okay, with the verdict of the Warren Commission. So that's four, okay? So it was really four to three the other way. And I, if you ask me, I, I don't believe Warren actually believed it either, okay? But he was so intimidated by Johnson that he went along with it. All right. So then uh, we go to uh, people like on the church committee, like Gary Hart and Richard Schweiker. All right. Who did an investigation of what did what did the FBI really sell the Warren Commission on? OK. And it wasn't very good. OK. So then we go to the HSCA with people like Gaten Fonzi and Danny Hardaway. OK. And Eddie Lopez and. Uh, uh, Bob Tanbaum, okay, and uh, Richard Sprague, all right, and today even Robert Blakey, okay, believes that there was a front shot, all right, and so that that's one of the ways we arrange uh, 
Paul gets to the point, how can these history textbooks ignore all of these people involved in these official investigations who disagreed uh, with the final product? All right, and I, I believe that ties in with what Andrew's writing about why here we are in 2024. Let me say that again. 2024. JFK was killed in 1963. All right. Why are there still 4,000 documents being withheld? Okay. In the face of 60, well, going on 61 years now of the public clamoring for everything the fee finally released to the public. Why is this so? You know, it's, it's, it's completely inexplicable to me. Well, Jim, let me, let me, this is a great segue, I think, as I had a, you know, we had a couple of questions that we talked about uh, in advance and I, uh, I'm really interested in your, uh, all your views on these next couple of questions. Uh, obviously you've asked probably the 60, the seminal question of what was the scale of it? If it was to hide or protect people who were living, the vast majority of those individuals are now deceased. So that isn't the issue. The issue of sources and methods is uh, a weak one, we know. And uh, so the, I think the the general public's question is, was it something much, much bigger? Was there more involved here? Uh, you know, potentially with, uh, you know, other, other governments, was there, was there re the real potential for, for war as, as Johnson, uh, uh, you know, purported in his discussions, uh, for instance, with, with, uh, Earl Warren, those kind of things, if there ever was a, uh, connection to the Cubans or the Russians that it would have been explosive in that moment in time would have probably been today too as well, but certainly then during the height of the cold war. So, uh, how do you, how do you interpret all of that? Is there, you know, is there some evidence that points to or leads to a, a deeper connection that has yet to be, uh, unraveled? Uh, you know, you talk in the book actually about two things, which I think are fascinating the interactions with French intelligence uh, between Bobby Kennedy and the, and the Kennedy family. And, uh, and also uh, the lesser known story, which has been out there for some time, but the whole discussion around the Russians who clearly knew as communists, they were likely to be pinned with this and uh, did their own investigations and came to the conclusion that it was a right wing conspiracy that in fact, LBJ had uh, something uh, more to do with and that it was potentially a coup. Uh, so with all that as the backdrop, what, talk, if you can, a little bit about these really, uh, uh, you know, sort of seminal topics around that whole matter. Well, if you want, I can go first. Uh, I think the whole uh, World War III scenario was more something to get people to play ball and to, uh, you know, to line themselves up with let's not dig any further than we have to. I, I don't really believe that. Uh, I think quickly a lot of the people who were organizing the commission found out that at a minimum, 
there were so many embarrassing relationships between Oswald and the FBI, Oswald and the CIA. There was way more to Oswald. And it had nothing to do with him being in cahoots with Castro. Uh, what he did in Russia and what he did for the Fair Play for Cuba committee were missions. They were intelligence missions, not for Castro. They were for internal reasons. Uh, so uh, whether the, just the fact that you would be tied to this fellow or, or connected to this fellow so you, you could have an excuse there saying, hey, look, this is too explosive. We can't explain this. He was an informant uh, and yet not necessarily have something to do with the assassination. So there was every reason in the world, uh, you know, to keep uh, this whole thing secret, including possible involvement of, uh, you know, persons of extreme interest that we always discuss. So uh, pertaining to the French, Russians and Cubans, we know they had an awful lot of intelligence in the U.S., especially around New Orleans. And, and the reason being that there were attempts on the gold slave and there were links with New Orleans. And the, the, one of the New Orleans links has to do with a guy called Maurice Gatlin, who, you know, brought money and, and helped finance. And he was out of New Orleans. And uh, then you had, of course, Herman Dex that kind of links to, uh, you know, uh, Clay Shaw was in there. So there were reasons to, uh, you know, to to spy. And, of course, the, the, the Cubans had, uh, you know, a huge number of informants within the Cuban exile, exile community. And the thing with the Russians is they didn't use their findings or their knowledge to provoke the Americans. They kept it mostly for internal consumption. So they didn't go around saying, hey, you murdered your own president. You guys are, are not a democracy. Uh, lately, Putin has been, you know, maybe waving that around. But that wasn't done back then. So uh, that's my view on, on, on uh, you know, I think this whole foreign government thing has always been overplayed. And uh, but that there was, they knew something much bigger was involved for sure. It, it that's a variant. Let's put it this way: within five days of the assassination, Castro did a long speech in which he explained how the whole thing really happened, and it wasn't the official story. He was supposed to give, I think, a speech to some students at some college on economics, but he said, "I think it's more important to talk about what just happened in the United States," and he went ahead. And in a remarkable speech, he laid out the whole thing. You know, did, come on, this Oswald guy asked to be interviewed by the FBI, okay, in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. He just happens to be associating with all these Cuban exiles, you know, etc. All right, so that's that's one. Then there's De Gaulle. De Gaulle, who was the uh, target of numerous assassination plots in France, okay, said, look, you can't pull something like that off unless there's some people on the inside, okay, depriving you of the proper protection, all right? And then there's Khrushchev. Khrushchev met with Drew Pearson, I believe, in the spring of 1964 uh, in Egypt, okay? He happened to be visiting there, and Pearson had the – Pearson was an FBI informant. Okay, 
And he wrote this report saying, inevitably, we talked about the Kennedy assassination. I tried to push the whole Oswald did it thing on him, and he started laughing. And he says, you really don't expect me to believe that, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here you have, you know, de Gaulle, Khrushchev, and Castro all not taking what everybody in the United States is supposed to take seriously. They all think it's a fairy tale, and they're right, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a great segue, actually, because you mentioned something in the middle of that, Jim, uh, that we just is sort of very fresh in the minds of the listeners at JFK, The Enduring Secret. And that's the issue of uh, the, the involvement of the Secret Service and the protection <coughs> and, the, and the matters uh, that occurred uh, around the around the plots and the alleged plots and the. Uh, period just prior to the assassination. You mentioned a few of them in the earlier part of the conversation, but, uh, you know, going all the way back to Springfield, uh, the Washington plots, Chicago, and then, of course, you know, the Miami and Tampa with uh, the Joseph Miltier tape and the uh, and the whole Don Adams story that goes around that as well, too, later, uh, and William Somerset. Uh, tell tell us uh, a little bit because the the book does a great job I think in laying that out and the one thing that the deep dive into the Secret Service episodes should reveal to everybody listening is that you, you when you listen to it you ping pong back and forth between an incredible level of incompetence uh, a little bit of laziness uh, and at times you know a circumstance where you have to evaluate whether something was deliberate and and perhaps nefarious. And it isn't really for me, as bad as some of it is, uh, completely clear until you get to the discussion around the prior plots. And when you you see what they were dealing with in Miami and Tampa, particularly, and what they already knew just days before, and how they still, in the face of that, altered how the protect the, the basic protections of the president in, in in quite similar circumstances just a few days later. It it's very hard forensically to be at the ten thousand foot level and look at that and have anybody explain that away in some innocuous fashion. Uh, and so you and you all obviously address that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, well I think Paul, Paul, in fact, I think it might be. Uh, I think Paul had the longest segment in JFK Revisited because Oliver was was really interested in that. OK, and Paul did a very nice job. Uh, well, G- Gilberto Lopez, go go ahead, Paul, talk about Gilberto Lopez. Well, uh, yeah, thanks, Jim, and good point, Jeff. Uh, just uh, as a template, well, as a template, as a background, the reason the prior plots, it, it really should be called similar case analysis because there are certain things that we talk about in there uh, that aren't necessarily plots but are cases that, uh, you know, any investigator would have looked into and said, hey, you know what, there's a guiding hand here. There's a template. Uh, Jim brought up earlier the number of potential patsies that are linked to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. 
Now, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, for all practical purposes, was dead in 1963. It was on its, I mean, they weren't having meetings anymore. They even, you know, had, uh, they had some board meetings, the, the Socialist Workers Party, to say, we'll keep it alive on paper, you know. So in the meantime, you have Oswald opening up and making a fool out of himself in the most dangerous city in the world to be able to, you know, leaflet, to start leafleting for communists. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you, the other point that you bring up, Jeff, is if you talk about Springfield and you talk about Miltier and you talk about Tampa, these are threats of assassination from high buildings. Okay. Yeah. And where's he assassinated from? A high building. I mean, it wasn't as if, you know, there wasn't an advance warning. Now, uh, the, the third thing before I get to Tampa is uh, 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 the uh, Tim Samalock of the Warren Commission in Jim's documentary. I found it amazing when he talked about how the Secret Service in 1993 went into shredding mode of all JFK's travels in 1993. Why? Because probably we would have seen in those files, uh, you know, personalities and people that are involved and say, boy, are these Cuban exiles? Are these people linked with the FPCC? So they didn't want us to dig into that stuff. Now, getting to Tampa, uh, Tampa is an extremely interesting one because it's the HSCA itself that says the fact that the, the, the FBI did not look into this guy called Polycarpo Lopez, okay, and they didn't investigate him for the Warren Commission, was egregious. Why? Because here was a suspect who was acting very suspiciously. He, shortly after the assassination, went to Mexico City, according to their files, through Laredo, and was a lone passenger on a plane to Cuba. And that was after having made threats to kill, uh, you know, threats to or being linked to even Oswald. Uh, so he he uh, he's not investigated. And then when you look into him, guess what he did a few days and a few weeks leading up to the assassination? He was attending Fair Play for Cuba committee meetings. So I think if you put that all that chapter together and you look into it. There's another one I'll, I'll just mention briefly. Is Shortly after the assassination, the, uh, the uh, police in San Francisco arrested an ex-military guy who was making threats against Johnson. And this guy was part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee in, 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 um, in San Francisco. So when you look at that, the fact that they didn't even do any similar case analysis is amazing. But just what we can dig up from the official files and from articles and everything, people like you, me, and you look at that and you say, hey, wait a minute. There are some fingerprints there, obvious fingerprints. Let, let me add about the Gilberto Lopez thing. Um, that was... I'm not sure if it was the longest, but it was one of the longest processions of any trip that that uh, Kennedy took. All right, it was literally miles upon miles upon miles. All right, and it ended up at a tall building, the Floridian Hotel. Now, this was after Chicago. All right, 
All right, this was after Chicago. Kennedy had canceled Chicago, probably due to the warnings uh, coming out of there. He was determined to go through with the Tampa one, all right? And he made sure that there were layers upon layers upon layers of protection, not just from the Secret Service, but from the state police and the local police. Mm -hmm. They were literally on every floor of the Floridian Hotel, okay? And after it was over, Kennedy stayed there and he insisted on shaking hands with every single person that was involved with protecting him on that trip. Okay, now here's my question. How could that have gone off like that? But a few days later in Dallas, <clears throat> you get the famous movie of Don Lawton being called off the car as it's coming out of Love Field. And he's, and he's moving his hands up and down. What are we doing? What are we doing? Lawton would have been <clears throat> on the back bumper of the car. Okay, there's special rubber bumpers that the Secret Service puts on the limousine. That's where he would have been, obstructing a rear shot. All right, so everybody in the world who's listening to this show has every right to ask that question. Okay, what was, what was the difference between Tampa and Dallas? Now, remember, it's not just Tampa, though, because Chicago took place three weeks prior so any you would figure that any oh. any protective service agent okay in the secret service would say wait a minute here we've got this guy this valet guy okay in chicago we've got this gilberto lopez guy who's going to fair play for cuba committee meetings in tampa and then he runs away and he goes to texas goes to mexico city don't you think we ought to be careful about what's going on in Dallas because they despise Kennedy down there? You would think that would be the natural reaction. And instead of stripping the protection away, you'd think they'd be adding the protection to it. Well, as as you know, uh, there were there were really clear indications and, and, and the destruction of records related to all those previous trips right as the ARRB requested them is another serious uh, point of and let, let me add this the secret service knew that that was something that the review board was targeting they had sent a letter to the secret service a few days before okay and so they knew they wanted those records they disappeared that. them anyway yeah and in, and in fact as doug horn mentions in his book inside the arb there was a debate inside the review board. Should we take these guys to the mat on this to discourage anybody else from doing this? They were seriously thinking of calling a press conference and screaming bloody murder at the Secret Service for doing this. They ended up not doing I think they should have done it. Well, they, okay, they, ended, they ended up, up they, yeah, they sent a, I think what they did and the, 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 the sort of the, the go to the mat thing was simply to send a second letter. I think Jeremy Gunn sent the first one and then Tunheim sent actually a letter as the, as the, uh, as the head of that uh, review board. And that was, that was as far as they took it. And yes. uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's a real, I think there's a real problem with uh, uh, you know, with that, with that, but to that point, 
And I ask this a lot in the uh, Jeff. Can I just add one last thing? Oh yes, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. If you take a look at the Zapruder film, where are the motorcycles? You know, where are the motorcycles? Forest sorrels stripped away a couple of the motorcycles. Okay, they're supposed to be bracketing the car. Well, go ahead and look at the Zapruder film. <laughs> See if they're bracketing the yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know they're not bracketing the car, well, and the and fact it, that they're not bracketing a car allows a front shot from the grassy knoll you know, to get a Kennedy. So if you take Lawton off the back and you take away the bracketing, well, come on, you're like at a target range. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think yeah, and let me let's let's add to that. If you're uh, sort of a, a Doug Weldon disciple and you uh, you're uh, presuming that there absolutely was a shot from the front, and they removed what would normally have been a middle a person sitting in the middle front seat in order uh, to remove the obscurity of that shot. And I think it was at uh, uh, General McHugh uh, would have been normally sitting Berkeley. in that seat. Uh, or, or Berkeley, I think either one of them were uh, at times in the front seat, and they made they were uh, moved to the back. They were, they were. <laughs> a, a, yeah, exactly. So you have a circumstance where uh, the shot was uh, you know, cleared out. The the path for that shot was cleared out. So there's all and uh, again, I think that you know I'd love to see you all do this. We're 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 about ready to do the summation uh, on uh, on the Secret Service. Uh, issues and that'll be in a separate episode uh, as soon as we finish up some of the the uh, plots and uh, I would love to see you all do a joke holds on the Secret Service I it's really for me the, it's crazy I think that body of evidence is an example of the stand down of the Praetorian Guard and the real question is who who ordered it and how and, and uh, why why did they turn down the offer from the San Antonio? Why did they turn down that offer? That's very, very weird. But getting back to the book, I, I believe Paul is the first, and I believe the only guy, okay, to actually do what is called in the trade a comparative case analysis. You know, if you can believe it, the Warren Commission completely missed the Chicago plot, okay? All right. And then the HSCA discounted it. They mentioned Gilberto Lopez, but they still didn't do any prior comparative case analysis. I believe Paul is the first guy to do this kind of thing. OK, you know, like all the things that happened that should have been an absolute red arrow to Dallas. You know, like I've said before, if you consider Paul's analysis I think the inevitable conclusion is this. Kennedy was not getting out of 1963 alive. And that's yeah. what happened. Okay. Well, let's let's ask a question around that, too, because I think, uh, uh, you know, Don Adams, who was the FBI agent uh, down in Valdosta and Quitman in that area, uh, eventually wrote a book. And it's a stunning book about what happened to the evidence down there related to the uh, investigation of Joseph Miltier. And uh, those are, it's an incredible story. There's more to Miltier obviously than meets the eye because he was a 
sort of a lower mid-level courier in a lot of ways on a lot of different things. But uh, if you lived in the South at that, at that time, you, you really have a, a better appreciation of uh, the, you know, just what was there, just, just what sympathies were, uh, you know, clearly embodied in a lot of different institutional elements, including the law enforcement agencies. And I'm sure it was in the FBI at that moment. Uh, and um, particularly in places like Atlanta, uh, I happen to live, uh, you know, part-time in Atlanta now too. So, you know, I mean, I've, I've, you know, grown up in the South, even though I was born in the North and you, uh, you really get a flavor. Uh, the country's changed a lot in 70 years, but uh, for those of us who are old enough, you, you, well, I, I guess I'll say it as bluntly as this, you've seen some of those things from Mississippi burning. Uh, mm. I remember, I, I'll tell you, I, well, I, this is burned in my head. I, I, uh, I mentioned it. It's the episode's not out yet, but it's recorded. Uh, it's about some of these things. I remember I was, uh, uh, probably seven or eight years old. I was in, uh, I was growing up in Fort Lauderdale. We were playing football, uh, the kids in the neighborhood. And it was uh, just about dusk. And, uh, I looked down we stopped for a minute. Something caught our eye. We looked down to the end of the uh, street, quite a ways down. Uh, and there roaring uh, on fire was a cross about 12 or 14 feet high. And it had been placed in the front yard of someone who had just moved into a house in the neighborhood. It was the first uh, African-American family that I uh, was in the neighborhood. We, we were too young. We were all too young to really understand what it was, but it was an absolutely frightening experience to look down there and to see that. And it was confusing because no one really knew why uh, this was occurring. And uh, even in some of the more metropolitan areas, and of course, places like South Florida, you know, quickly uh, evolved into much more uh, uh, diverse and international uh, uh places but there was still an element of the deep south even in, in places like that in the you know in the late 60s and early 70s and you know uh, i don't think people realize just what was underneath the covers and a lot of a lot of the different fabric of, of life and so i i mean these are the, the his story is absolutely amazing he was one of these guys who uh well, can i some, comment on that jeff yeah sure see see look Eisenhower and Nixon made a conscious decision not to abide by the Brown versus Board decision. Okay? The Brown versus Board decision was apical because I'm sure Andrew's very familiar with very seldom does a court reverse itself. Okay? Um, Andrew, what is that called? Stare decisis? Yeah, once there's a legal precedent, uh, lower courts cannot go against that uh, decision. Right. So Plessy versus Ferguson set a precedent, okay? It could only be reversed by the, another Supreme Court decision, all right? And so then in 1954, you had Brown versus Board. But Eisenhower and Nixon decided they weren't going to strictly enforce it. In fact, they barely enforced it at all. In 1957, 
Kennedy made a speech in New York City and he said we must abide by the Brown versus Board decision. It's the law of the land. But then even worse, <laughs> he went to Jackson, Mississippi and he said the same thing. Okay, we will abide by the Brown versus Board decision. Now, in case your listeners don't know what that means, it means that public facilities must be integrated, mm -hmm. especially schools. Mm -hmm. okay, in the South, you had this rigorous segregation. Okay, and so here's Kennedy in 1957 saying twice that we're going to abide by the Brown versus Board decision. And so then in 1961, Bobby Kennedy goes to the University of Georgia Law School. He takes an hour-long speech, and about one-third of that speech, he says, we're going to abide by the Brown versus Board decision. All right. Now, you can imagine all these right-wing groups in the South, how they felt when they heard this, okay, that this was not going to be Eisenhower and Nixon anymore, but we are going to go ahead and proceed on the basis that the Brown versus Board decision is the law of the land. Okay, you had all of these wild right-wing groups, states' rights party, the Minutemen, etc. Okay, and not only did they say it, but they proceeded to do it. All right, especially University of Mississippi with Edwin Walker causing a riot there. And then at the University of Alabama, okay, where uh, Kennedy brought 3,000 men in, you know, to back up the state police, excuse me, back up the state National Guard, okay? Yeah. And you had to face off with George Wallace mm -hmm. on television. If, see, if you weren't there, you don't understand what this was like because that thing with Wallace, that was on all three networks, Everybody yeah. in the country was watching television, was tuned in and saw this thing, okay? And they saw the military deployments on both sides, okay? And I, they saw they saw that Kennedy had nationalized the state guard. And the state guard uh, general goes up and says, you're either moving or we're going to have to remove you, okay? <laughs> All right, so the tension, you could cut it with a knife. And then that night... At the suggestion of his brother, JFK makes that epical civil rights speech, okay, which nobody ever heard anything like that from a president. You have to go back to Lincoln, you know, to get anything like what he did on national television. You know, the country will never be free until all of its citizens are free. So you can imagine the way somebody like Joseph Miltier felt about this guy, you know, after he does this stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an ama amazing set of stories. Uh, I think, you know what, I'm just looking at the time, guys. We're getting on to about an hour, uh, and I, we can go on for longer if you uh, if you have time. Uh, but I do have – Jeff, I have Jeff, I've, I've, got, I've got NBC calling me, okay? okay. <laughs> <laughs> you probably do. That's the thing. You <laughs> no, no, got no, a, no, no. You got Oliver Stone or somebody calling no, me. No, Andrew <laughs> might have CBC, but I don't have NBC. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, all, all good. You never, you never know. Uh, Matt, Matt, maybe because he's been on uh, these things lately. He did his work with Paramount Plus. I mean, there's been a lot yes. of uh, a lot of yes. a lot of exposure you all have had collectively. Uh, Andrew, I well, want. No, we're very appreciative for you doing this, Jeff. 
Well, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, the feeling is mutual. It's a, you know, I would say it's a uh, research love fest here. I will tell you one of the things which you said in the book, and I want to just, uh, I want to ask Andrew a, 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 a sort of a, a, a final question. He's been pretty quiet here. He's, he's chirping in occasionally, but uh, before I get to that, I want to say, you know, that uh, your your book is uh, one that I hope everybody will will go out and uh, get and put on their shelves after they've read it, not uh, put on the shelves and not read it. A lot of people buy these books and they never get through them. I, I bought your book and uh, I didn't do it on day one. I got busy. And uh, then all of a sudden, Andrew uh, texted me and, re and and it reminded me and I went out and bought it when I got it. I couldn't put it down. Uh, it was, uh, it's a great book. It's really readable. It'll, it'll advance the whole thing. And you have a concept in there that I want to get to in 19. And you mentioned it earlier in 1963, it was almost unfathomable that there could have been a coup in this country, or there could have been something of the nature that we're, that we dealt with in this event. And, uh, everyone who was smart enough in the very early beginning to uh, pro to probe this in an appropriate fashion and began to see all of the problems, many of them faced incredible odds at, at trying to get to the truth. And, and, and in the beginning, there was uh, danger, true danger. And uh, I think most of that has subsided in today's environment in terms of the, 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 the danger element of it. And what has amazingly happened in the last 20 years, I think, with the Internet age and, and, and some level of consciousness of the American public and so much has gone on in other events, that the believability of what was once uh, an extraordinary set of uh, premises is uh, uh, no longer something that uh, people look at and say, boy, it's so far out. We can't, we don't understand it. We can't believe it. Your, your approach to this, I think, I think that, I think the sentence was something like we, we want to set out to remove some of the quackery around uh, uh, this, these topics. And uh, you know, look, there's a lot of intellectual firepower in this room right now. And there'd be even more if all five of you were here, the, the, the caliber of individuals that are involved in your project is uh, really second to none. And, uh, and I think it, it brings a tremendous amount of credibility to it. It's not, uh, this is not a short, uh, you know, sometimes I'm not going to name anybody, but I've seen some things lately where I'm, you know, there's a big lead up and a little bit of a disappointment on uh, because I don't think it is as well researched as something like chokeholds. So uh, I just want to congratulate all of you. It's an amazing book. I'm sure it won't be the last yeah. from all of you, uh, you know, for, for sure. Uh, and, um, uh, and I'm going a little bit out of order, but I want to stop there. I want to say, I want to ask Andrew one question. Uh, Andrew, uh, there's a, a lot of dis I get many emails and there's a lot of questions about whether all that's gone on in the last year or two, to try to pry the rest of the records loose has been helpful or hurtful or, or neutral. And uh, I think, I don't think there's anybody better than you that could answer this question. Uh, do you think there is still a path 
forward to uh, release the remaining records, which are still in the custody of the, uh, the government. And I know that's a conjecture on your part, and I don't want you to reveal anything that would impinge upon the strategy of that occurring. But uh, I think we want to, we're in the sunset period of this. There's a few key witnesses left by uh, Marina Oswald. There's a few, not many. Uh, and, you know, there's not many people we can ask now about these things. But uh, before it's really too late to ask anyone anything, uh, do you think we'll get the rest of these records? I can't really answer that in a, in a yes or no way. I think um, after Oliver Stone's JFK film came out, there was a, just a massive groundswell of public outrage about the secrecy over those files. The conspiracy was one thing to to commit the the murder, but the government's withholding of its own records from its people um, was so grievously unjustified to the American people that they spoke out on mass. Um, and that resulted in uh, the creation of the Assassinations Record Review Board, which came out of the JFK Records Act in 1992. I think what we've seen, Jeff, in 2017, first off, when President Trump uh, did his first major postponement in October, the public reaction was like, hey, all those records were supposed to be released in October 2017. And there were quite a few, mainly researchers and, and some members of the public were, hey, wait a second, we were supposed to get those records. Then there were several subsequent postponements in 2018. And when President Biden became president in 2021, this last postponement last June really sparked outrage, and you could even feel it in the mainstream media, which have been really quite horrible um, in reporting on the JFK assassination and the withholding of all these records. There, there was a palpable change of reporting on the JFK records in June of 2023. Uh, with President Biden's last postponement. Um, there's no explanation. A law, a specific law, was created to release those records. Thousands of them. And that's records. There's That's not pages. That's records. Some pages are upwards of two or 300 pages. So we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially still millions of pages of records that are being kept, in my view, unlawfully, by the government with respect to the assassination. So do, do I think there's a good likelihood that they're going to be released um, without more public outcry, without the public contacting their Congress people and their senators and demanding that something be done, that the JFK Records Act actually be followed, maybe amended to to make it even more clear than the law already is that those records ought to have been released. I think really it's in the public's hands right now um, 
to put that kind of pressure on their government to to do what the law requires, and that's to release all of the records um, that remain in in uh, in the withheld collection. And that's the only way I think it's going to happen. Thank you, thank you. That's a that's a, a great uh, PS for the audience. I think at the end because there's more to do here and uh, more more ground to cover. Uh, gentlemen, I'll give uh, uh, I'll give you any last word you like. Uh, I have to say, you know, Paul, uh, wonderful to meet you for the first time today. Thank you. Uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, Jim, I can't, I can't wait to have you back and all of you back actually. And Andrew is coming soon too, I think to do something more on the records in more detail. Uh, you, all of you have an open invitation. Uh, it, it's really an honor to have you all on the show and I can't wait to get it published. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thank, right. uh, thanks so much, Jeff. You, you know what? It's, it's always a pleasure and you've been wonderful. Um, in in providing the episodes that you have over the last three years, and uh, I'm really happy for your success and and to play whatever little small part uh, that we have. And and on behalf of all of the authors of uh, of the chokeholds, we really do thank you for having us on. Yes, I like to. I agree with my colleagues, and I want to thank my colleagues too because. Uh, the chokeholds would not have reached the caliber it did without a group effort. Uh, you know, Andrew didn't talk too much uh, today. He did, you know, I think make some very good, uh, you know, give insights. But what the attorneys did and what Jim did to ensure quality control at all times, and that permeated through every chapter, uh, it, it was huge for us. So uh, thank you to my colleagues and nice meeting you, Jeff. I think you have a wonderful approach with your guests and uh, be happy to be back on. Wonderful. Well, good day, gentlemen. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to have you back. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you for watching our inaugural episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret on YouTube. And be sure to find our podcast on any popular podcast outlet.